we get started, uh, every, this has happened a few times in the history of the branch, but um, I have to offer a public uh, confession so of sin, and so that is gonna how, that's going to be how we start off this morning. So um, Matthew, it's actually a sin against you. Um, I, I played your guitar after soundcheck, and it was a little out of tune, and I, I apologize. That is, that is my fault. Uh, do you forgive me? Okay. Because I could not have preached without knowing I had your forgiveness. Um, Psalm 24 is where we're going to be this morning as you start to flip there. Um, there's a bunch of different things we're going to cover first before we actually dive into this morning. Um, first off, because the reason I am here is because this lady has a birthday. So I want to say happy birthday to my mom. Um, we're not going to sing because she would end my life. So we will leave it there. So thank you for birthing me, mother. Um, the other couple things that are kind of related, kind of not, um, we are, so we've got this week and then next week we're meeting in here and then August 5th we're moving back into the gym and kind of we're preparing our hearts for the school year to start, for students to come back. Um, and so starting with that, I alluded to it the last couple weeks, but um, starting in August, the first week in August, we're asking to do a church-wide fast. So every Wednesday, um, we're asking you guys to fast from something um, from sunup to sundown. It could be food, it could be technology, it could wh- whatever, it's between you and the Lord, whatever you decide to fast. Um, but the mindset of that is getting our hearts ready for um, 8,000 college students to be coming back for this new year. We really kind of run, um, not like the January to December schedule, but really we run hard from August to May, and then during the summer we get to breathe and catch our breath, and, um, and then we get back at it again. So just kind of as a reminder, we still got a couple weeks coming before we get to that fast, but just as a reminder, that is coming. Go ahead and start praying like what the Lord wants you to fast from, and, and join us in that commitment to fast for God to move this next school year. Um, so we, as most of you guys know, we're continuing the series on spiritual disciplines. We've taken a pause from Luke, and, and we've kind of been working through different spiritual disciplines, whether it be uh, corporate disciplines as a church, whether it be inward or outward. Um, so we're kind of continuing, we're not kind of, we are fully continuing in that this morning. And, and this one is going to be, I think, a fun one. I, I hope uh, I hope we have fun together. Um, so as we're, as we're kind of wrapping our minds around this first discipline before I roll it out, just help me kind of gauge where we all are. From the first time you woke up in the morning, wake up in the morning, uh, how quickly do you move to technology, to song, to TV, to your phone, anything? How, how quickly from the time you, your eyes are awakened till there's some kind of noise taking place, how quickly is that? Anyone? Less than 60 seconds. Anyone else agree with that? Well, yeah, I mean, not, it doesn't have to be your alarm clock, but like, yeah, literally zero seconds, right? <laughs> Any, I mean, would everyone, most of us agree, under 60 seconds, we've got our phone in our hand or the TV on or music going. Anybody else under 60 seconds? Anyone over 60 seconds? How long for you? 10 minutes. Anyone over 10 minutes? You don't own technology, do you? <laughs> no, that's not a bad thing. Maybe we all need to get rid of any anybody over ten minutes. Chris, how long for you? An hour. So here's the disciplined one, right? So I mean, I'm I'm with. I just have a really weird morning ritual where my alarm goes off. My alarm is my phone. So on the way to the potty, I pick up my phone and I go sit on the potty and look at my phone. Anyone else? I've got kids. That's why I say potty. Lay off. Do you do that too? 
Yeah, I mean, that's just, so, I mean, the, literally the moment we wake up, we're already um, sucking in technology. We're already, and, and Don Whitley in his book on spiritual disciplines says this, that one of the costs of technological advancement is a greater temptation to avoid quietness. And most of us need to realize that the addiction we have is to noise. So this morning, we're dealing with the idea of silence or solitude, and we're going to use those, even though the definition is a little different, we're going to use those kind of synonymous this morning. Um, but what is the discipline of silence, of solitude? What does it look like for us, and how can it affect us? Because we alluded to it last week, we check our phones an average of 150 times a day. So we just have to just get out right now that we do not have much silence, we do not have much solitude. And I'm not talking about loneliness, like I'm talking solitude that fulfills us from the inside is, is what we're looking at. So Psalm 46, I think I said 42, um, Psalm 46 is just a quick two verses that, that will really help us open up a whole paradigm for this idea of silence and solitude. And it was hard, I mean, I was telling my wife, it, it's just, it was hard to pick one scripture because we see this littered all throughout scripture. And, and I, I really try to like, maybe it's just because I'm a young gun in defiance, but I try to avoid like the cliche Bible verses. I want to go like deeper than that. But, but I mean, this is the truth of the gospel and this is what we're studying this morning. So um, this should be familiar to most of us, but maybe the implications, I would argue, aren't. Psalm 46, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. Psalm 46.10. And just so you know, get your fingers ready because we are flipping a lot today, boys and girls. Go ahead and get that licking going and we're going to be flipping. That is a horrible note clip. Don't, yeah. Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress Selah. So, so let me start at the end and kind of work our way back because Selah is just this really interesting musical term. Any musicians in here? Salah. <laughs> Serious? Oh, okay. <laughs> However you want to pronounce it, it's fine with me. Salah, Selah, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. So um, anyone been to like, not like a rock concert, but an actual symphony, like a, a credible concert, right? So you, the moment the music ends, but the, the music is still reverbing around the room. Have you guys experienced this? That is the moment of Selah or Salah, where the music has stopped, but you st- there's this awkward, not awkward, but this good full 20 to 30 seconds before people actually start to clap for the music that they just heard, where you sit and ponder as that music is still resonating around you and just kind of all of what just took place. That is the moment of, of Selah or Salah. And so what David is saying, or the psalmist is saying here, is listen to what I just said. Stop, don't rush on to the next verse. Stop and ponder, stop and consider the weight and the gravity of what just took place. And the only way that we can do that is in silence and in solitude. The only way we can really marinate on what just was said was in silence. It's this moment before we actively start to do something, we sit and we ponder and we consider. And so for this morning, for us, be still and know that I am God. The conclusion of this, what we're going to be arguing this morning, is that silence and solitude reveals God's sovereignty for our lives. So silence and solitude, be still and know that I am God, God's sovereignty. So how do we better understand to come to grips to the sovereignty of God? It's through stillness, it's through silence, it's through solitude. And we are not good at that. This generation is not just all that's going on. This is a discipline. This is something we're going to actively have to work towards to get to that point. 
So, so what is, let me just maybe basic, give a basic definition for God's sovereignty before we um, start to dive in. Piper, John Piper says it this way. There are no limits to God's rule. So what is God's sovereignty? There's no limits to God's rule. This is part of what it means to be God. He is sovereign over the whole world and everything that happens in it. He is never helpless, never frustrated, never at a loss. And in Christ, God's awesome sovereign providence is the place we feel most reverent, most secure, and most free. So what we're trying to understand is this incredible, magnificent power of God's sovereignty. And the best way for us is to understand that, based on what the psalmist says, is in stillness, it's in silence, it's in solitude. But we have an adverse reaction to that. We think we should be going constantly. So, so what I want to kind of understand, and this is, has been for all the d- disciplines, that, that we're not focused on the discipline in itself. We're focusing on the results of the discipline, right? So, I mean, if, if you guys exercise, we're not focusing on the exercise as a discipline. We're focused on the results that's going to come from the exercise. If we talk about saving money, we're not just talking about saving money. We're talking about the freedom that comes from saving money. So this morning, we're not focusing on just the discipline of stillness and silence, but what are the repercussions? What what is the freedom that comes from focusing on this discipline as we understand God's sovereignty and his love and his grace and his mercy on a whole deeper level. And so just kind of understanding that, flip over to 1 Kings with me, and I'm going to kind of argue a little bit, a couple points that would maybe help us and encourage us in this way of silence and solitude as a discipline. 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, because the first thing we need to see is what happens in the silence. Is God actually present in the silence and solitude? And 1 Kings is going to show us that he is. 1 Kings 19, we'll pick it up in verse 11. God is talking to Elijah, and he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire and the sound of a low whisper, and Elijah heard it, and he wrapped, in his, wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? So you have to understand the context of what's going on in Elijah's life. If you flip back one chapter, it's probably one of my favorite scenes in scripture where um, he's calling out the prophets of Baal and he calls down fire and then turns around and kills all the prophets. So because of what has just taken place, Elijah is now running for his life. There's people out to kill him. And so he goes into solitude, he goes into silence, he's standing inside this cave, and he says, God, like, you've got to show up, just kill me now or do something with my life. Either way, I'm fine with it, but, but you have to show up. So a lot of us, we've kind of gotten that situation where, God, if you don't show up, if you don't prove yourself in this moment, then, then I don't know what's going to take place. And so you see all this clutter from the fire, from the earthquake, but where is God at? And the silence and the whisper, that's when the Lord begins to speak. And we just have to, because of all the counseling and all the experience I have and I know that you guys have had, we have to uh, debunk this notion right now that the silence of God equals an unlovingness of God. That how many times have we gone through something, we've we've felt something, we're wrestling with God, and we say, well, God is silent, therefore God doesn't love me. 
Well, God isn't speaking. He doesn't feel like I don't feel him, so therefore he hates me. And I've seen this and I've experienced this. And I think a part of it, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. I married my high school sweetheart. So I, like this whole dating with technology deal was not me. I still had to pick up the phone and call. And then my mother, my now mother-in-law would answer the phone. And it was the most terrifying five seconds of my life. Like, can I please talk to your daughter? And a lot of times she'd say no. And I'd say, okay. And then I would go pee myself. And that would be it. Like, you guys don't have to experience this at all. But I know because of talking to a lot of you guys that are dating, if there's any kind of silence in your communication, your mind starts to wonder, doesn't it? Why didn't they respond back? Why didn't they text back? It's been two hours. Our snap streak is about to end, which I don't even know what that really means. But, but you fret over this, like, why are they not responding yet? And so we kind of naturally carry this into our relationship with God. We misunderstand the silence of God. But what we see here, the conclusion that we can argue from here is, man, this is what's taking place. That God is not in all the noise and the clutter that he is in the silence. My best friend growing up in high school, his parents got divorced way before I knew him. But I went over to his house one day, his, his dad's house. And you know those like wood, they're just like a piece of wood that you like carve into. You know what I'm talking about? Just a simple little sign. And so the first thing that you see when you walked into his house was, I said, if you never, if you don't understand my silence, you'll never understand my words. I was like, that's a pretty deep quote. Like, where did that come from? He said, yeah, it's kind of uh, awkward. Like that was the last thing my mom said to my dad before they filed for divorce. So she had been going through a series of silence before the divorce took place. And so her point was, but man, if you don't understand why I'm silent, you're never going to understand my words. And I would argue that conclusion for us that, that if we can't see and understand the silence of God, then we're never going to understand the words of God. So we have to realize that his silence does not mean, you cannot, to me, make a biblical point that God's silence means that he doesn't love us. That God's silence means that he's not for us. There's no reason, there's no point in that. It almost points the opposite, that when God is silent, it means he's speaking the most. So we have to debunk the idea that God's silence means he doesn't love us. We have to embrace the idea that God's silence means he's speaking to us, that he's for us. So that's, that's the first argument that we want to understand is that God's silence is actually a good thing for us because it finds out he's not actually silent at all, that we're seeking for his voice. So flip over with me to Luke 15, or Luke 5. This will be the next kind of the progression that we see from, from God's silence is that means that we must enter into a season of silence to hear the voice of God. Luke 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 15. Luke 5:15 But now even more the report about him Jesus went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities but he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray Verse 16 this is Jesus that he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So the whole ministry of Jesus was rooted upon moments of silence and solitude for him. So look, I mean, how did Jesus' ministry begin, right? A 40-day fast. 40-day of silence and solitude with him and the Father. How, what did Jesus do the night before he chose his disciples? Luke would argue that he went away, and, or not argue, he would report that he went away and prayed, got in silence and solitude. What did Jesus do the night before he was murdered? 
went to the pray, went to the Mount of Olives, prayed, fasted, by himself, silence, solitude. We see this all throughout scripture, all throughout the gospels, that Jesus was constantly going away. He was constantly withdrawing because that is where the power came from. Now look at me, real, I just wanna make this really clear. You're not better than Jesus. Can we just kind of all agree to this point? That if Jesus' ministry was dependent on silence and solitude with withdrawing from the crowds and connecting with the Father, then wouldn't we draw the natural conclusion that that must be a reality for us? That the discipline of silence and solitude was modeled by Jesus, then if Jesus did it, then how much more should we do it? That he could do nothing. I mean, there's twice in the New Testament this phrase comes up, do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. So we see it in Jesus was one of the reasons that he was withdrawing to silence and solitude to connect with the Father because he was growing weary in doing good. So, I mean, we, we just have to understand that we are not machines. One of my, this quote that's been rocking me over the last couple of years um, is that we're human doers, not human beers. Right? Oh, wait, did I say that backwards? Yeah, because we're constantly going, we're constantly doing, we want to be human doers, but we have to understand that we're actually human beings, that there's times where we have to rest. We're not a machine here. We can't continually run. Do not grow weary in doing good means you must stop. You must embrace silence. You must embrace solitude. If Jesus withdrew, then we withdraw. But what happens when we do? I mean, think about just for a moment the greatest vacation you've ever had in your life. The greatest time when you got out of Dahlonega, Georgia, or out of your hometown, just picture that for a moment. And did you not come back to school? Did you not come back to work to your family, to your friends, with maybe a little different perspective or a little different meaning for your life? I mean, was it what was great about getting away was a recalibration of your mind to come back and focus on what you actually want to focus on? So when we have these moments of silent and solitude with the Lord, we're naturally going to get recalibrated through our rest. I mean, how, how many nerds do we have out here? Just curious. No shame, just a good nerd. You don't have to be, it's, nerds rock it, right? Here's what I just don't like about technology. This is where all you nerds start. When, like, technology is just messing up. What do you always tell me first? Reboot it, right? Unplug it for 10 seconds to plug it back in. That is dumb, but it always works right? Almost every single time that works. So Jesus did it. Technology does it. Do you think that maybe we just need solitude and silence just to reboot our hearts to focus on what we need to see? So the last one, and this is where I want to spend the majority of our time because this should kind of, I don't think anyone would argue with me yet that, that God doesn't speak in the silence. I don't think anyone would argue with me that, that, listen, this is true that Jesus did it, so we need to do it, but this is where things get a little crazy. Isaiah 53 if you can flip there for a second. Because what we're going to see, and this is, the, I think, the greatest idea of it, but it's going to be the most painful part of it, is that silence makes us. It forces our hand to rely on the sovereignty of God. That in our silence, we have no other option but to rely on the sovereignty of God. And Isaiah 53 prophesies it and prophesies about it, and then we're going to flip over to Matthew 27 and, and actually read the manifestation of this prophecy to make sure that we see this together. Isaiah 53, we're going to pick it up in verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, everybody with me? Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before its shears, he was silent. So he opened not his mouth. So twice as, the, as Isaiah is prophesying about what's going to come when the Messiah, what's going to happen when the Messiah comes for us, he says twice that he opens not his mouth. That Jesus chose in this moment to be silent. Because of the time he had spent with the Lord in silence and solitude, when he came to this moment, he chose not to open his mouth. So flip over to Matthew 27 and we'll see what actually happened if this prophecy came true. Matthew 27, we're going to pick it up in verse 11. Matthew 27, verse 11. Now, Jesus had already been before the Jewish council, and the same thing had happened. So, so now as he's before Pilate, the same, this is going to happen again. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he, he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they have to testify you against you? But again, he gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. So here's Jesus that could have stopped all of this in one word. In one phrase, he could have turned all of this over because Jesus was innocent. There's nothing that he had done wrong, and he knew it. The crowds knew it. Everyone knew it, but he kept silent. And we know the rest of the story. I mean, in a moment, we're going to take communion. We know that he was murdered, that if he would have just spoken up, this murder would not have taken place. And we're a culture that wants to defend our honor constantly. That if we even think or allude that there's a charge set against us, that something, someone has talked bad about us, we want to defend our honor. Uh, here's a, maybe an embarrassing illustration that I'm really ashamed of, just out of the forefront, but... Uh, I want to say I was in college, but I don't think I was actually in college. I think I was much older than that. I was driving home, got to a four-way uh, red light, you know, where the people across from me, they had a turning lane with a yield sign. I had the green turning arrow, so I was turning left. This lady was turning right, and so she had a yield sign, but I guess she didn't see it, and she became very uh, upset with me. You could see uh, profanities coming out of her mouth. I think you could see, uh, I thought she was telling me I'm number one, but I don't think so. Looking back, she was very angry with me that she thought I cut her off, and clearly I was in the right, she was in the wrong. She had a yield sign. So as we're driving down the road down Bethlehem, I see her in my rearview mirror. She turns into the Kroger shopping center. I said, huh, I was right. She was wrong, and she needs to know that. So I 
turned into the Kroger Shopping Center and began to follow her to her parking spot. Now, you have to remember, this was a single lady in her car by herself. Uh, I think at the time I had a lifted truck, and it just had to look like a weird situation. So she parked. I pulled up next to her. She was one of those. She rolled her window down like two inches, like, can I help you? Now, what I wanted to do was just rage and like pick up the brick that I carry in my truck. and th- I don't really have a brick, but just rage against her. But I just politely said, ma'am, you were flicking me off and you were very uh, upset, but, but you had the yield sign. Okay. I said, well, no, I just wanted you to know that, that you were in fact wrong. It wasn't me. That you were the one that should have yielded, that, that I was in the right, you were in the wrong. But, but based on your actions, you thought it was the opposite. So I, I feel like you owe me an apology. Okay, like at this point, she was going to say whatever she needed to say so that her life would have been spared. I wasn't, I genuinely was not angry. I just wanted her to know, but just between me and her, that she was actually wrong, not me. So she apologized, and, and I went about my day, and looking back, how embarrassing, what an idiot was I. But how often do we let this emotion drive us? That we, no, 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 I didn't do that. I didn't actually say that. I didn't actually believe that. We're constantly defending our honor in front of the others that, that there would never be a moment where we're just silent and say, okay, say what you wish about me regardless of the consequences because that makes us feel helpless. And as Americans, we hate to feel helpless. God helps those who help themselves in the Bible, right? No, God's sovereignty is in the Bible. So if Jesus can stand there or or kneel there right in front of all of the two different courts and say, no, no, let me hear all these false charges against me and I'm going to stay silent. He's exercising that my dad knows more than I do. If there's any other way for this cut to pass, let it. But if not, your will be done. So he was okay in the silence. Why? Because he spent time with God in the silence that he had heard, that he had processed, he had prayed, he had spent time with the Father to say, I I know if you're leading me here, I'm going to stay silent because your will is more important than mine. So what would it look like for us to actually stay silent when we feel like our credibility is on the line? What would it look like for us to actually trust in the sovereignty of God instead of trying to feel like we constantly have to defend ourselves? Because what, what takes place in that moment is we switch the sovereignty of God to the sovereignty of man. I know what's best for this situation and this moment, and silence is not the answer. It's me. But if we never take a step back and actually retreat and spend time in silence and solitude with God, then we're never going to know when to be silent and when to speak up. Because silence and solitude draws us to the deeper relationship with the Father that we all secretly desire for. And we think we can get it by talking and and doing all this stuff like, I'm going to sing and I'm going to do this and I'm going to have as much commotion as I can because that's what's going to lead me to the Father. But it's silence and it's solitude. It's getting away. And it's in that moment of helplessness saying, God, you are God, I am not. So I will stay silent here. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a quote that has just kind of been wrecking me a little bit this week. Real silence, real stillness, really holding one's tongue comes only as a sober consequence of spiritual stillness. So we want to justify ourselves. We want to protect ourselves. We want to uh, make everyone know that it was not me, it was someone else. We want to continually be justifying, but, but doesn't Jesus say that he is our justifier? It is only by his blood, by his bloody, by his blood, by his body that we are then redeemed. But we think that our words, if we talk enough, that we could redeem ourselves, that we can justify ourselves. 
And trust me, like I am probably one of the most raging extroverts in this room. I love to talk. One time I took a personality test and I was 98% extrovert. I, I get it. The more I talk, I'm, I'm Michael Scott. Sometimes I just start talking, hoping that along the way, I'm going to find what I was going to say, just because I like to talk. So I understand the difficultness, the difficulty here of stillness and solitude and silence, sitting before God. Also understand that I have a wife and four kids. The stillness and solitude is rarely how our house is described. Chaos and noise is how our house is described. But like most good disciplines, most good things for us, this is not going to come easy. This is going to come with, with effort, with discipline. But it's something to be celebrated. So, so what does this actually look like for us? If we think, if we believe that discipline leads us to a deeper relationship with the Father through stillness and silence, what are some practical ways for us to live this out? I think the first one is just taking advantage of the little solitudes that we actually have. How many of us drive in a car most every day? So what would happen if we just turned off the radio for 30 minutes of that day and just sat in the stillness with God? We just sat and listened. We tried our best to clear our mind. We just sat in the stillness and trusted and reflected and marinated on how good of a God he is and how the sovereignty of God is why he should be celebrated. Because he knows it all and we no, nothing. Maybe it's not that. Maybe it's disciplining ourselves to get up 30 minutes earlier before our roommates get up so that we have, or before our kids get up, or our husband or our wife gets up, so we have just a little bit of quietness before the chaos of the day begins, just to get up a little 30 minutes, 40 minutes earlier. What about this? Maybe developing a place where this place takes place, where this moment happens is in a specific place. I was reading a story about a guy that had a chair and his kids, his whole family knew that when dad's in that chair, that is his silence and solitude chair. Don't, don't mess with him when he's sitting in this chair. We've talked about prayer closets before. We have these huge homes to entertain, but, but what if we just had a prayer closet, a silence closet, a place where we could go every single day where we're in this room, we're in this environment. It creates this attitude of stillness for us. And if you're like me, a, a closet isn't going to work, but praise God, we live in a beautiful place, right? I mean, just the stillness of the mountains, of the streams, of the creeks, of the fields. What if we were constantly going outside to get away in silence and solitude? While we're there, don't just sit there forever. Read and pray and meditate within the stillness of God. Extroverts, where are you at? Cool, okay, three of you. That's a lie. Um, what if we tried to go a day without words? Just as an experiment, what if we went a day without words? Which I know already, like if, I, if I'm ever quiet in any environment, people are like, oh man, what's wrong, Gabe? What's going on? Are you okay? I'm, like, I'm just trying to be like still and silent. And, uh, Sherry, I see you. I know that like the moment that we're quiet, people, especially if you tend towards the extrovert side, people naturally think something's wrong. But what if we tried to go a day without words just to see what God is actively doing around us? What if we did really good deeds, we served one another without any kind of explanation? That who's going to be praised because of these good deeds? Because what we want to do is say, I did this for you, praise me. But if we did something and said, no, God did this through me, praise him. I, didn't, I don't want any explanation. I'm not going to explain why I did this, or you're not even going to know who did it. Doing good deeds in silence. But I think the most applicable things that we could do is just put on our calendar today 
half day, day, weekend retreats where we get away just for the purpose of silence and solitude. Or we get away just to listen to the voice of God. Go hike to AT just for a day and spend time listening to him. Don't take your phone, don't take your, well, take your phone just for safety. Don't take headphones so you can listen to podcasts. Just genuinely get away so that you can experience the stillness and the silence of God. So that we can embrace this idea of solitude that God speaks in the whisper. So if we get away from all this clutter and commotion going on in our lives, then we will hear the voice of God more clearly. I know some of us have crazy jobs and we travel and we do all this, but, but we can start the discipline now with an hour and then it can grow into a day and then uh, maybe you and your spouse can pick a couple times a year where, where you get away and just pray and, and in the silence of God plan out the next quarter of your life so that you can hear the voice of God. But church, we have to understand that more noise is not gonna grow our faith with God that more clutter, that more um, videos, that more all of that is just going to keep distracting us from him. And we're going to start to misunderstand the silence of God because there we have no silence in our lives. But if we can stop and meditate within God's silence, then we will hear his voice more deeply. So I'm going to ask Matt to come up as we get ready for communion. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to have just a few moments of silence. And when Matt starts playing, he will enter us into a time of communion. But, but what better opportunity do we have than to start this now? As we begin this idea of silence, of solitude, my first question for us would be, what, what are we afraid of? I think we're all actively going and are busy and we enjoy noise because if we're actually alone with us and God, he's going to convict us. He's going to remind us of sin. There's things that we're probably wrestling with God that we don't want to be. So therefore, we keep the noise going. So let us pray. And then as believers, if you're a believer in this room, we're going to have communion. If you're not yet a believer, I mean, I'm so glad you're here. But... But this time for us of breaking the bread, which represents his body, and dipping it into the juice, which represents his blood, uh, we, we reserve this for the believers because this is, this is everything to us. This is a reminder of what God has done for us and as a public affirmation of us accepting this on our uh, behalf. And so if you're not yet a believer, man, I'd love to talk to you about it, but uh, we'd ask you to sit in your seat as we as believers take this and remember how good of a God we have who doesn't always speak how we think he should, but he always speaks in the silence. So let's pray. And Father, we know that this discipline will be a hard one. That we have so many things going on in our lives and the idea of taking a day just to sit in your silence. And to hear you speak is, it's going to take discipline, Father. It's going to take effort. It's going to feel unnatural to us. Because we know that silence and solitude will lead us to deeper waters and will allow us to trust in your sovereignty more. So Father, I pray that you would reveal to us why we are running from this silence what we already know about our sin, what we already know about our struggles in ourselves that keep us from spending time with you.
God, I pray you would convict our hearts of why we are looking to be entertained and, and want everything else other than to spend time with you. God, I know of many in this room that are looking for answers. That we, as in our past, have misunderstood your silence. But Jesus, we saw you constantly, even when things were good, even when things were bad. It didn't matter. You were constantly getting away by yourself for intimate time with your Father. And let us mimic that and let us be like you in that. That we cannot go about our life without retreating first. That our energy, that our power, our stamina only comes from you and your grace. So Jesus, would you remove the legalism in us that that constantly feels like if we're not doing something, then we're failing, that if we're not constantly going for your sake, then we're sinners. God, let us see that we are nothing apart from you. And that if we're not constantly reabiding in you, the vine, then then we're going to wither and die. God, would we grow to love the silence of your voice? Would we long for the solitude of our lives so that we can hear more clearly from you? Would our desperation to hear your voice and your will for our lives be so strong that it drives us to sitting at your feet for moments, for hours, for days, longing to hear you speak? God, in the silence, would we constantly be reminded of the scriptures that we have read and meditated on? Father, would you give us more clarity for our lives? And so church, let us sit before we go into a time of communion. Just listen. To not think, to not let our minds wander, but just to listen, to sit in silence and marinate on the sovereignty and the goodness of our God.